Hey, well, uh, thanks again, band, for doing such a great job with us every week. It is uh, always good to come and hear you. I'm so glad that you're back with us, and I can't wait for each of you to get back with us again, uh, to gather with us. I, I know online has been different. It's been different for me. It was really different when it was just me and Paul and Blake here and three of us and preaching to a camera. Uh, but it's, so it's really nice to have the band back and kind of spread out a little bit. I see a few more faces around. So thanks for, uh, for being back and serving us so well, band. And uh, even in these days like today that we're in. Uh, and so I, uh, but I am looking forward to getting back. I, I do look forward to these questions that we do online. I hope we won't stop that actually. And so I hope you're tuning in online early because we're doing trivia. And so it's important for you to pay attention because we do ask some questions from the text. So if you want to win, I know we're a lot of competitive people out there watching. And so uh, if you want to win at trivia in your home, it's best for you to pay attention uh, uh, specifically to our text today, and so that's where we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14. So turn there with me, if you will, and we will dive into uh, today's text. Genesis, it's uh, we're making our way through, and I've been through creation, and we've been through some of the texts, and now we've gotten, gotten to Abram and the story of Abram, and so we're going to be in his life for quite a while. And so we had the first, we really talked about uh, most of Genesis chapter 14 last week, and then we get into a specific piece of it that I really want to preach uh, a certain on today around Melchizedek. And so let's get into the text and see uh, what it says. Genesis chapter 14, uh, verse 17 is where we'll pick up. <clears throat> After his return from the defeat of Ketelowamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek King of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said... To the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Uh, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share." So let me pray, and we'll dive into today's text. God, we love you. We need you. Uh, God, will you help me today as I preach? Will you use me, Holy Spirit, uh, to enlighten your word? You be the one who enlightens it in the people's hearts today uh, to, and to teach us something about who you are. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, last week in our text, uh, we wrapped it up a little bit with... Uh, with uh, Abram coming back into the town. He had, he had won, he had won the battles and he had come back into his town. And, and so I see it a little bit like uh, a con after conquering kings have come in and, and there it's almost like this big party mode and they come back in. I, I was thinking about it this week and it reminded me of people that uh, are fans in soccer games. I think they're the most rabid fans. And so uh, I, I just saw the whole coming back into town as a bunch of soccer 
Raptor fans and everybody's got their Vavuzula and they're blowing those thing. I wish I had one, uh, but I could just see, that's just the picture that I have in my mind is they're coming back into uh, the city after the defeat of Ketaloamar. Uh, and again, uh, those, the customs of those times uh, when, when, a def- when a king would defeat someone uh, uh, that, that uh, when Abram protected them, the custom during this time was to give him some gifts. It was uh, said, hey, we want to give you what it is that, that you deserve. We want you to, to receive uh, uh, some bounty from us. And, and so two kings, it mentions in our text today, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, both were Canaanite kings. Both of them came to meet Abram, uh, but they came with different views uh, into Abram's victory. And honestly, isn't that the way that we view things today? I mean, we all come into uh, viewing situations differently from one another. No matter the details, no matter what's going on in and around that particular situation, different people bring their own experiences and their own difficulties, their own fears, their own spirituality into a situation. They're probably... 15 people here in this room with us today now. And I would dare say that if we had one situation that we brought to each of us today, uh, that we would all come at it with different viewpoints, right? We've all got different uh, things and different historical uh, things that have happened in our lives. And same thing for you if you're watching online. If we brought that same situation to each of you who are watching, because your history is different, because you've got different life experiences, because of your genetic makeup, just lots of different things that cause us to act and react differently to the very same situation. We just don't all react the same way. And we get a, we get a, a, a real truth, a real view into that truth uh, in today's text. So uh, the king of Sodom, uh, you'll see that he viewed Abraham's victory or Abram's victory as a human feat. And so he was like, hey, this is something that you've done on your own. And, and, and so I see that in you. And, and so I want to honor you in that way. It's almost like Frank Costanza as he won the Festivus Feats of Strength. Uh, that's the way I kind of saw it too. And so he was like, Feats of Strength, yes. Uh, and so the king of Sodom approached it in a very businesslike situation whenever he came to talk to Abram. Uh, But the king of Salem saw the victory differently. He saw it as divine. He saw it as something that was outside of himself and outside of something he could have done on his own. And so this person that saw it was none other than Melchizedek. Uh, and so Melchizedek is, is, is introduced finally into our text today. And, and so who is this Melchizedek guy? I mean, who is he? And, and so that we learn a few things from, uh, from the text. One, we have no idea where Melchizedek, where, where Melchizedek came from. There's nothing that tells us where he was. He just kind of appears on the scene and, and, and how, he, how he came to be in Canaan. We don't get any ideas about that or uh, we don't really know how he became to be a worshiper or a priest. The text just tells us that that's who he was. And uh, we only don't know how Abram really kind of came to know him. We just know that he was there. That's really all that we get from the text so far. And, and it tells us that, again, he is king of Salem, but you and I would know Salem as Jerusalem. And so that's interesting, too, that, that he is the king of Jerusalem during this time. And so he was the, the ruler or the king over what would come, come to known as the holy city. 
And so Melchizedek, if you know what that means, his name means king of righteousness. And the text tells us that he was not only a king, but he was also a priest of the most high God. So he held both of those offices, priest and king. So when you put this all together and you get it around uh, who is this Melchizedek figure, you get this, that Melchizedek, was the God-fearing Canaanite priest-king of Jerusalem. Got that? The God-fearing Canaanite priest-king of Jerusalem. So again, uh, both of these kings came out to meet Abram in his victory. So let's look at the text and see what it says specifically about this particular thing. Verse 17 after his return from the defeat of Ketelomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and of earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this really is the only mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And so many people believe that uh, Melchizedek is, um, is a Christophany. So here's a, here's a good $10 word for you, a Christophany. They believe that Melchizedek is a Christ Christophany. And you may say, well, wait, Pastor Scott, what is a Christophany? Well, I'm glad you asked. A Christophany is this. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. So pre-incarnate, which means pre-incarnation, which means pre-birth of Jesus, appearance of Jesus. So this is, we think of Jesus coming onto the scene specifically when he was born. Well, this is one of those pre-incarnate, before he was born, appearances in the scriptures. And so as you think about this, you may say, well, what's another Christophany that you can think of? Do you have any ideas? You may at home, do you have some ideas about other Christophanies in the Bible? You guys here that are in the room, do you know other Christophanies in the Bible? Say it again. Wrestling with Jacob, yeah, there you go, that's one. Ah, the fourth memory in the fiery furnace. Uh, so that's interesting that you would say that because it's actually what I wrote down. Daniel chapter three, um, uh, verses eight through 25. If you get into that text, you'll see that... Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the king's kingdom, and he had put out this whole uh, edict that as soon as you heard all these trumpets and all these uh, sounds that were supposed to be made, you were supposed to stop and worship the king, right? You were supposed to stop what you were doing and worship the king. And so all that actually transpired. If you read the text, you'll read in there, and you'll see that uh, all that happened, and the horns blew and all this kind of stuff, and people were dropping, and they were worshiping the king. And if you read the text, it says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't do that, and somebody ratted them out. They, they literally said, hey, king, uh, there's these three guys over there and they didn't actually worship, stop down and worship you. That's all the rats always talk like that. Uh, and so, so they said, hey, they didn't stop and worship you. So the king was incensed, the, the scripture says, and see, so calls for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come. And he says, why didn't you do this? And they were like, well, we're, not gonna, we're not willing to worship you. And he was like, well, I need you to bow down and worship me. And they're like, we're not gonna bow down and worship you. And he says, well, then I'm gonna throw you into the fiery furnace. And so he said, turn up the furnace 
furnace. And so he turned up the furnace as high as it could go. And he said, it had some people that they bound Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they took him to the fiery furnace. And he said that the fire was so hot that it actually consumed the people that were taking them to the furnace. And so then they throw them in somehow as they were being consumed and, and they get into the fiery furnace and then the scripture says that the Pharaoh was up there and he said he wanted to see what was going on and he looked into the fiery furnace from afar so he didn't get burned and he saw four people in there and he said, and even uh, the Pharaoh says, hey, uh, the king says, it looks like the, the fourth one looks like the uh, son of God. And so it was interesting to say that they, he called them to come back out and the scripture says that nothing was burned on them. Their shoes weren't burned. Their sandals weren't burned. They didn't even smell like smoke is what the scripture says. And we see that because Jesus had come with them. Jesus had appeared with them and Jesus was protecting them. So that's the Christophany that I always think about whenever I think about the Old Testament. So, uh, uh, so, so that's what a Christophany is, is an Old Testament or a pre-incarnate before Jesus was born and into this world, a appearance of Jesus on the earth. So many will argue that uh, Melchizedek is, which is what I call him this whole time, <laughs> Melchizedek is a, a Christophany rather than a historical person. Uh, so let me, let me think about this. So one of the major factors we consider uh, whenever interpreting the Bible is how the Bible interprets itself. So when we talk about, is this a Christophany? Is Melchizedek a Christophany? Uh, then we have to think about how does the Bible actually interpret this? And so if we take uh, the uh, appearance of Melchizedek, or what I call him, alone uh, in this, we could actually come to that conclusion. Because again, we go back to the genealogy. There's no real genealogy of him uh, coming up. Where does he come from? We're not actually really sure. Uh, they, he was a priest and king, which we know that the scripture uh, tells us that. Uh, that was unheard of during the time. And, and so taking all those things into effect, we can say, yeah, that actually, he actually, that probably was a Christophany. However, pump the brakes on that because uh, I think we can find something else in the scriptures that tell us uh, something a little bit different. If you go to Hebrews and, and learn from the full text about what it tells us about a Melchizedek, I think it'll show us something different. Let's see what we find there. Hebrews chapter six is where we'll pick up. This is the last verse of Hebrews chapter six and verse 19, this is what it says. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then you get to chapter seven. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning nor end, nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so the key word that, uh, that we have to get to is resembling. So I'm gonna do one of my favorite things uh, as I do this, and that is circle a word here with this. So resembling is the key word here. Resembling the Son of God, he continues 
a priest forever. So again, we're gonna get a little bit technical. So in the Greek language, which Hebrews was originally written in the Greek, and so this verb translated resembling always, and say always, always. this verb always assumes two distinct people. When it uses this word, it always assumes two distinct people. And so what I think that helps us understand, again, we're going back to some technical language, and, and if we just do this as a cursory reading, we can come to the conclusion that this was a Christophany. But that's why it's important to study the text. It's important to study and understand language that's outside of our own English language uh, that we, we get to this point where resembling always assumes two distinct separate identities. I think the point that, that we can make here is I believe, and I believe that I believe correctly, that the Son of God and Melchizedek are two distinct persons. So let me, uh, let me get back to that and, and just make this point here, that the Son of God and Melchizedek are two distinct persons, okay? Tracking with me? You don't have to land there with me, but I think I'm right. All right, moving on. Uh, so both Abram and uh, Melchizedek came from two different pathways as they were getting to be both worshipers of the one true God. It tell, the text tells us that Melchizedek was from the cursed line of Canaan. If we go back to Genesis chapter nine and we read that, the scripture literally says, cursed be Canaan, because this was after that uh, uh, that Noah had awakened and he uh, was laid out and he was he drunk too much and he woke up and he was woke up and he was naked. And, and so literally the first thing he said whenever he woke up from this was, cursed be Canaan. And, and so this is the line uh, that, that this one comes from, that Melchizedek is from this cursed line of Canaan. And in that same text, it tells us uh, that the line of Shem uh, was not gonna be cursed. And that's the line that Abram comes, that we, uh, we associate him with uh, uh, in this throughout these texts that we've already studied. And so the same could be said from many in our Refuge Church family today, that many of us have different backgrounds that we come from, right? Some that we say are good family backgrounds and some that we say are bad family backgrounds and, and some of us from good church backgrounds and some of us from not so good church backgrounds. I mean, some of you in this room and some of you watching even today uh, grew up in the church and, and you know what it's like to go to church. You know what it's like to be a worshiper of God and you know what it's like to love and Jesus and for, to know that he loves us. You know all the words of the doxology, right? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Yeah, so you know that one. You're all in the band, so you know that one. But, and so, so many of you grew up in the church, you know those kinds of things. But some of you didn't grow up in the church. Some of you are new to this. Some of you are brand new to Christianity. Uh, you're, you're new to what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, you're new what it means to be new to the part of the family of God. And, and so doxology to you could just be a, you know, a good bar down the street. It sound, sounds like a hip place sounding bar where you might go hang out with some people. Uh, and, and so doxology to you has a completely different meaning than it does to people in the church. And, and so that's okay, but we come from different backgrounds and we end up though in the same family. And how cool is that? 
I mean, how awesome is it uh, that we get to come uh, from multitudes of different backgrounds and be part of the family of God? I always like to say this at Refuge, that we're like the island of misfit toys, uh, that God brings a bunch of different jacked up people around. And because of Jesus, he has made us one family. And, and I love that about us here because there are many times, many of us at Refuge, we wouldn't know each other or we wouldn't actually hang out with each other if we weren't part of the family of God because we're so very different. But because of the things that we have together, because of Jesus, because the spirit of God that lives within us, it makes us want to hang out with one another. And I love that. I think it's one of the coolest things about that, that because we're people who have been rescued from our sin, because we've been filled with the spirit of God, uh, because we've been given the same marching orders to go and make disciples, uh, that we're actually on the same team now. And I love that very thing. And it's just now it's just like Abraham and Melchizedek. They're on the same, they're on the same team. And so here they are coming together. And so this was around 2000 BC. And honestly, for another thousand years, there was no mention of Melchizedek. I mean, nothing, not a, not one mention of him again, until King David speaks about him in the Psalms. So in Psalm 110, uh, this is what David had to say. <clears throat> he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he sk skip ahead to verse four. The Lord has sworn and, and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so again, it's been a thousand years since anything had ever been talked about about Melchizedek. And suddenly King David is speaking about him here. And what King David was declaring uh, when he was writing this particular psalm is that God was planning to do something amazing. That God was really up to something and he was gonna do something really cool. He was going to bring a, a, a priest king onto the scene after the order of Melchizedek. And th and, but this, this priest king that he was bringing on, his kingdom would last forever. It would last forever. It would be after the order of Melchizedek, you would see some of those same similarities, but his kingdom would not die. His kingdom would not end, but his kingdom would last forever. And obviously it was pointing to Jesus, pointing to the one who was to come. And so we say uh, that many times whenever we read about things in the scriptures, that we'll see uh, Old Testament figures and people being types and shadows. You've heard those words before, types and shadows of Jesus. So these are, this was a type of, uh, of Jesus, or this was a shadow of Jesus. This was pointing us to the one who was to come. And so that's what I believe that Melchizedek also was doing. He was a type of the ultimate priesthood of Jesus. And, and so the question begs us together is this, how, does some, uh, what, how are some of the ways that Melchizedek points us to Jesus? As we get into this text and as we read it today, how does Melchizedek point us to Jesus? Well, I think one of the first things is, is that both are kings. Uh, the scripture tells us that uh, Melchizedek was a king, and obviously we know that Jesus is our king. And I think one of the coolest and one of the most awesome texts that we read about Jesus being our king is actually from uh, Revelation chapter 19. And so if you don't have this one marked in your Bible or, or you haven't read it in a while, I'm gonna read you a few verses from uh, Revelation 19 because I think it's one of the coolest pictures of all of Jesus, specifically when he, this is when he is coming back and whenever he comes back into the world, 
he makes his uh, second coming and his appearance uh, into the world stage. Uh, this is what the text tells us it's gonna be like. Uh, chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name of which he is called is the word of God. And his armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so I, I love that picture of Jesus coming back. He's got tats on his legs uh, written and he's on this horse, a whomping and a whomping, uh, coming back and we are following him on our own horses. That's what the text says, that we're coming back as a huge big army and it's so awesome and I love it because, and many people think that there's this, this huge big battle and it's gonna go on forever and, and, and there's, you know, the, the, the good guys are battling the bad guys and, and Jesus is gonna come and he's gonna duke it out with Satan and all this kind of stuff. I love the way Adrian Rogers used to describe it. He said, Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna say two words, drop dead. You know, and, and, and at that point, I mean, Satan is done and it's over. There's no fight. There's no, oh my goodness, who's gonna win? Uh, it, it's none of that. It is Jesus is gonna come and kick him some devil's tail and it's gonna be over real quick. Uh, and and I, so I just love that picture. And so I, 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 that was just for my own edification other than to tell you that Melchizedek was a king and Jesus is our king. And, and so uh, the scripture tells us that Melchizedek was also called the king of righteousness and the king of Salem, which means king of peace. When you say king of Salem, that can also be translated as the king of peace. And so the, the, the New Testament actually identifies Jesus in those same kind of ways, that Jesus is the righteousness. First John chapter 2, 1 tells us that that's who Jesus is. He is our righteousness righteousness. And then Ephesians 2, 4 says that Jesus is our peace. So Jesus is identified in these same ways as well. The psalmist in Psalm 85, 10 says, uh, reminds us that the Lord, that the Lord righteousness and peace kiss each other. That righteousness and peace literally kiss each other in Jesus. How cool is that? What a great picture uh, of Jesus in that. Uh, these are telltale signs of Jesus' character. And the reality is one of the most important things is that Jesus bestows righteousness and peace on you and me. Whenever we follow Jesus, he gives us both of those things. And he, he gladly and generously gives both of those things to us whenever we follow him. Um, uh, and, and so righteousness, again, comes from trusting in him, that it's imputed righteousness, that it belongs to another, that Jesus is full of righteousness, everything is right, everything is pure, everything is holy, and he gives that to us, he imputes that to us, which means he freely gives that to us uh, at no cost to us, right? And so he imputes righteousness to us and he gives us peace. That peace comes to us whenever we are in a relationship with God, whenever we are in relationship with Jesus, when we have repented of our sin, when our sins are no longer held over our heads, right? If you think you can walk around and think that my sins are no longer held against me, that should bring peace to you. That should bring peace to us that we don't have to fret and worry and wring our hands anymore over whether or not we are at, at odds or with God because peace comes in 
Jesus. And, and so we see these things in, uh, so, so one, we see that one, both are kings. Uh, we see that both are priests, uh, that, that Melchizedek was a priest and Jesus is our priest. As a priest, what did the priest do many times? The priests would go and they would intercede between man and God, right? That's what priests would do. And so Jesus does that on our behalf. Jesus intercedes on our behalf. He is, at, the scripture tells us he is ever interceding on our behalf. He is at the right hand of God whenever we are being accused by our accuser, that Jesus is the one who steps in and intercedes on our behalf and says, no, we don't have to, don't believe what the, the accuser is saying, that I have the one covered. I've, I've got my people covered and, and there's nothing that we have to believe about ourselves because we, uh, that, that when our accuser says these things, because Jesus is interceding on our behalf. He is, he is playing the role of priest. He is our priest on our behalf. Uh, the scripture says that they're both full of righteousness, that, that, that Melchizedek was full of righteousness and we know righteousness and we know that Jesus was the same way, that Jesus is full of righteousness and the scripture says again that he brings peace, that, that both Melchizedek was bringing peace uh, to the area and so is, uh, so is Jesus. He is the one that brings peace. So you mean that I can have righteousness and I can have peace and I can have all these, that, that I can have all these things to me. So you're saying there's a chance for me to have these? And I'm saying that yes, there is. Absolutely. There's more than a chance. There's a blessed assurance that those belong to you in Jesus. You get all those. So scripture tells us too in this text that we look at that Melchizedek bought both brought both bread and wine, and, and he was bringing it as a celebration of what was going on. He was bringing it as a, as a celebration of the victory, or, or maybe as yet in what it was to come, that he was looking ahead to, hey, there's going to be peace that is going to be coming, and so I'm going to bring bread and wine uh, to this to, to memorialize what you've just done and to know what is to come. And, and really, it's almost a picture for us uh, of what we do whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper, whenever we bring the bread and we bring the wine uh, or just grape juice uh, for some of you uh, uh, to the Lord's table, uh, then we do those very same things. We look back to what it is that Jesus has done, what our King has done for us, and we look forward ahead to the peace that is to come. Just tracking with me there? See what the king was doing and the symbols that it was, bring, that it was making. Uh, the end of verse 20 tells us that... Um, that Abram gave him a tenth of everything, right? And so he gave him a tenth of everything. And so Abram gave unto the Lord through Melchizedek a tithe of everything that he had. And so this, this referred to a tenth of all his assets, not, not just his income, but a tenth of literally everything that he had. I'm, I'm, so you took it all into account, took a tenth of it, not just his money, uh, a tenth of everything he had. And, and so there's an important point uh, that I want to make here for us. Uh, some people will try to convince you that this is where the tithe came into play. Right, everybody's starting to get nervous now because I've been talking about money. Uh, yeah, come on. Uh, and, and so, uh, so that people will tell you that this is where the tithe uh, came into play. But, but here's what I, I want us to notice a little bit about this text, that Abram didn't do this because God commanded him to do it. Okay. He didn't do it because there was anything that said, now you go give a tithe to this other person. That's not why he did it. Uh, Abram, Abram didn't do it to continue 
uh, uh, to receive gifts from God or blessing from God. He didn't say, I'm gonna make sure that I do this to appease this king so that God will continue to do things for me. Or he didn't do it to try to manipulate God into continuing blessing him. There's nothing we read about that in the text that would tell us that that's why Abram gave a tithe. Abram didn't do it because he was compelled or coerced by others to, to stay in good graces with Melchizedek. He, he didn't have to do it with Melchizedek, and he didn't have to do it to stay in his good graces. So he didn't have to give him a tithe of anything. He just chose to do it uh, on his own. And, and if you look at this, one uh, commentator that I, I was reading about this said, uh, that it was almost as if Abram and Melchizedek worked to see who could bless the other more. That's what they were doing here, is they were seeing who could bless the other one uh, more. Uh, Melchizedek, we see pronounced blessing on Abram, and then we see Abram coming and turning around and giving him a tenth of literally everything that he had. So uh, Melchizedek blessed Abram out of his resources, and, and, Mel and Abram blessed Melchizedek out of his resources. And, and what a great attitude that is to have in the community of believers. I mean, for people that love God, what a great attitude that is to have, that, that we bless one another out of our resources. Amen. That's really the way that you and I are called to live, uh, to be blessing and, and honor given to others. That should be said about us. That should be said about each of us in this room. That, that, that we choose to bless others out of what we have. It, that should be said about you. If you're watching today, then it should be said about you. If you're a follower of Jesus, then it should be said about you that that's someone that blesses, that blesses others out of what they have. Out of, out of anything that they have, they're willing to use it to be a blessing to others. And, and they, they did it for one another's good. They did it uh, for their own edification. They were edified by doing it for one another and they did it for the other's benefit. What a beautiful picture of, uh, of loving and caring for one another, which reflects our king caring for us. They started it here. They weren't compelled to do it. Mandatory, there was nothing mandatory for them to do. They just did it out of respect and honor and blessing toward one another. Let's keep going. Verse 21 says this, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the good for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share." And so the text kind of switches focus here uh, and it moves uh, from Melchizedek over toward the king of Sodom. And, and, and so here's a few things that we see from these few verses. Uh, the first thing was this, uh, take the goods for yourself. Uh, it, it seemed the proper thing to do. And, and so the king of Sodom wanted to reward Abram uh, for all the good that he did uh, in, in recovering what was taken by the by the partnership of the five kings. And so he offered uh, Abram a tremendous amount of things. He said, hey, take goods for yourself. Do some things for yourself. And, and so he was also doing a good thing. He was offering him up something tangible in, in, the, in the situation they were in. He's, and, and this is a good thing. And, and so it seemed like a good thing that he was offering Abram these things. Hey, take what you want. Take something from me too. And, and the scripture is interesting here because Abram's response is interesting. Here's what he says. He said, I'll take nothing. 
I'll take nothing. Abram was, uh, was taking nothing because he was, had remembered the vow that he had made to the God Most High. It's interesting that he uses uh, the God Most High because he had, used, he had heard Melchizedek actually say this and refer to God in this way. And so he was like, hey, I like what he said there. So I think I'm gonna call, call God the God Most High. And you know how it goes uh, whenever we pray or we hear somebody else pray or we hear somebody else speak and suddenly we wanna mimic what it is they do. And they're like, that guy sounds smart. He sounds like he knows what he's talking about. I'm gonna use that phrase as well. And so almost we see Abram doing that thing. He heard Melchizedek doing it. And so he decides to do it and say, I'm going to call God the God most high. But he says, I'll take nothing. There's nothing that I need to take. There's nothing I need to get from you. He said, I've made a vow to the God most high that I wouldn't do any of these things. And, and, and so the question begs the question, why? Why would he not do it? Or why would he make this vow not to take anything? And, and the text goes on and tells us. It says, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. And, and so Abram didn't want the credit to go to anybody else. He didn't want the credit to go to this king. He didn't want it to go to anybody else. He just wanted the credit to solely go to God who said, it is God who has made me rich. It is God who has prospered me. It is God who has done these things for me. It, I want to give God all the credit for my success. I want it to go to God and to God alone. And, and so many times we need to think about those things. It is we, we look for every avenue, whatever we can, to get our hands on as much as we possibly can. But I just want to encourage you to be sure to give God the glory in things. It, I, I, we don't say that enough in our, in our context today. We don't say that enough publicly today. Uh, it's almost like we're like, do we say this or do we not say this? Do we, do we give God the glory publicly? And, and so we get, we get all excited whenever these athletes do it. And we're like, oh man, I'm so glad they're doing that. But the question is, do you and I do it? Do you and I do it? Whenever success comes our way, are we willing to turn and go, hey, you know what? It's God who has done these things. God is the one who has prospered me. God is the one who has offered me this. And God is the one who has chosen to do this for me. I, I hope that, that it will be that way for you and for me going forward is that we won't shy away from giving God glory whenever he, and when he deserves it. We should be the one, we should be the first people who are willing to do those kinds of things. And then lastly, uh, he says this, uh, let them take their, their portion. So, so what Abram didn't do was he didn't put his things, the things that he was convicted about and the things that he felt very strongly about, he didn't push them over on someone else. And so that's a really big and important part that I think that we need to see in this text. Uh, Abram didn't uh, impose his principles over on other people that could have received something uh, in return. Uh, what, what we see in, in Genesis chapter 14, verse 13, is these allies that he had in the battles, he said, they're entitled to as much of this as they want to take. They're entitled to, to take and, and, and receive something from you and receive something from the king. I'm just choosing not to, to do that. And, and so that's an important piece. So, so don't miss this. I, I believe that, that Abram was convinced, or to, good, to use a good Southern biblical term or a word we use in church, convicted. He was convicted uh, that he should not take the tithe uh, from, uh, to Melchizedek. He should tithe to Melchizedek, but he should take nothing uh, uh, personal from these kings himself. A personal preference, and he did this to honor uh, the king. And, and so Abram didn't coerce or shame others into doing the same. 
He didn't go, this is a decision that I've made for myself. And, I, and so what I've chosen for myself, you need to do the same thing too. Uh, as a matter of fact, he says, you should uh, take as much as you actually will. And, and so the question begs this, you know, we get to this point every week in, in these sermons is, what do we do with this? So, so what, preacher? If you've told the story of Melchizedek, you've told the story about uh, uh, these kings coming together and trying to outdo one another in honor. What do we do with these things? Uh, one, I, I say this. Uh, we see this in Melchizedek and we see this in Jesus. Uh, and, and so I think that we, the hope is that we see it in one another. And that's righteousness. That one, that we are in right standing with God. It's important that, that you're righteous and you only get that through a relationship with God and, and in through Jesus Christ. And, and, and so you and I can, can be righteous as well uh, because we're in relationship with God. We get a 100 on the test. I like to say we all get gold stars, that we are righteous in the, in the sight of God if we are in right relationship with Jesus. If we've repented of our sins, put our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. And we get peace in the middle of that. We just talked about that, but it's so important to see this, that peace had come through the region and peace was happening between these kings. And we get that same kind of peace whenever we put our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. Where we, uh, where there's no turmoil, there's no fear, there's no shame that we have to live under because we're in right standing with the king. Uh, and so when we have both of these, we have both righteousness and peace. We get to live in these uninterrupted, we don't have to get all bent out of shape over things. We can live in this same kind of peace that we see in our text today. When we turn to Jesus and we acknowledge him for who he is, we're able to honor him and honor others without regard for what they did or didn't do for us. You see, that, that's the last piece of that text is that we can honor others without worrying whatever they're doing for us. What a glorious place to live. What a place for us to live that would allow our lives to demand an answer from other people. Whenever we're just honoring people around us, whenever we're not at odds with people around us, whenever we're choosing to honor others or outdo one another in showing honor, what a, what a life that demands an answer. It, it, one place that I want us to see this uh, uh, in the text is in Romans chapter 12. It, it's, it's good whenever others are, we, we can live lives that are good whenever others around us are being rewarded. That doesn't happen often. That was happening in our text today. Other people are being rewarded and that's okay. And we need to live lives like this. In, in, in Romans chapter 12, uh, we, we see what that might look like for us today. I, I'm gonna read this because I think it's imperative for us to be able to take this Old Testament text and make application for us today. This is what the text says. That the marks of a true Christian, and I know I've said these before, but it's so important that we, that we talk about them again because we forget them. This is what it says. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Here it is. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's what the kings were doing. We're told to do the same thing. Outdo one another in showing honor. Paul goes on to say, do not be slothful in zeal. 
Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of of the saints and and seek to show hospitality. Listen, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Man, what a time for that. What a time for us as Christians to rejoice with those who rejoice, because we should. But what also a time, Christians, weep with those who weep. That's not just your friends. That's not just the people that you know. Weep with those who weep. We should be people who come alongside one another and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You're not the smartest person in the room. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what it looks like today for us. Just as Abram and Melchizedek and the king of Sodom were honoring one another, this is what it looks like for you and me today. This is what it looks like to live as people of God today. Oh, that we can live our lives in that manner a manner that demands an answer, a manner that demands that there's something different about you and me. May we live our lives that way today. If you're watching or you're here in this room and you don't have the capacity to live your life that way, you can't muster it up within yourself to live your life that way, then you're probably trying to do it on your own. And the reality is, it could be that the Spirit of God doesn't live in you. See, Paul wrote this to the church at Rome because he was writing to Christians and said, if the Spirit of God lives within you, and it does if you're a Christian, then your life should look like this. But if you just can't do it, you just can't bring yourself to live this way, you just can't bring yourself to to welcome in the stranger and and to live the way that Paul talks about, edifying one another, making much of the name of Jesus, then maybe you need Jesus. Maybe you need to repent of your sins. Maybe you need to repent of the fact that you don't love people well, that you don't honor one another well. Maybe you need to repent of that and put your faith and trust in the only one that will allow us to do those live that way. His name's Jesus. We wanna give you that chance today. We would encourage you to repent, confess your sins to Jesus. Say, I I clearly see that I've sinned against you, that I'm not living in a way that you would have me live, that my sins are overtaking me and my sinful mind, my sinful mouth, my sinful heart causes me to live in a way that's contrary to the scriptures. 
and I want to repent of my sins and put my faith and trust in the only one who can give me hope, the only one that can help me to live this way, the only one who offers me eternal life. His name is Jesus. Repent of your sins. Believe the good news of the gospel that Jesus rescues sinners like you and me. Do that today. Let me pray for us.